Hello and welcome back to the What The Fork podcast in association with Right With Goalkeeping. At the time of speaking, we're slap bang in the middle of the Euros, but we are going to switch off international football for now and turn our attention back to the best football club in the world, Sunderland, as we bring you another Sunderland special. Today's guest played approximately, I think, 35 games for Sunderland AFC, scoring three goals, and is currently part of Joey Barton, boo, Bristol Rovers squad. Welcome to the show. Jack Weldon, how are you doing? Are you all right, mate? I'm all good, mate. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, good as always, mate. Football's on the TV. Fans are getting back in the stadium. That's what we've wanted for a while, isn't that's it? That's what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah, that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Um, before we delve into Sunderland, I think it's fair to say it's been a, a tough season for everyone involved at Bristol Rovers, really. There's been a managerial merry-go-round at Sunderland before, so I'm used to it, but you're already under your third manager at the gas. Um, you had a few weeks off, but are you ready to put the disappointment behind you, get the side back into the third tier first time of asking? Yeah, like you say, it was a it was a very tough year. A lot of obviously on top of the obvious, being involved in the middle of a pandemic, um, we had the change of managers that really kind of unsettled camp a lot. And uh, it it was it was a tough year all round, really off the pitch, on the pitch. But like you say, it's, we've had a few weeks off now to kind of reflect and put that behind us and kind of refresh and recharge the batteries, ready to go for for a season in League Two. But um, hopefully one that we could turn into a winning season obviously something that we weren't used to last season we, we lost we lost way too many games last year it wasn't good enough uh, full stop it was a, it was an embarrassing season all round so uh, it's important for us to, to kind of try and, and try and bounce back and that is that is the goal no, make no bones about it that is what our, what our aim is for this coming season He's not the best of friends with Sunderland fans, admittedly, but um, I spoke with your assistant, obviously Clint Hill, a few weeks back, who obviously loves him. And the overview of Joey Barton, I've heard, has always been very, very positive. You might upset a few Sunderland fans here, but how much have you enjoyed playing under him in the first few months? Yeah, I mean, I, I, like you say, he might upset a few Sunderland fans, but he's actually uh, he's really good to work with. And I've, I've really enjoyed, obviously, the, the coaching staff come in at a very difficult time and we found ourselves in a really tough place um, and through no want for trying like they we did absolutely everything we, we could um, the, the staff especially they was leaving no stone unturned and and you, you probably have a a thought in your mind of what you're kind of going to expect when you hear that Joey Barton's coming to the football club but I mean for me personally it was it, like he was a breath of fresh air um, very intellectual, very articulate, fr- football through and through. Um, very good man manager, very good uh, communicator to the group, and it was it was exactly what we needed at the time. Unfortunately, we fell short at the end of coming into the, the season. But what, what I'm hoping for, and what I'm sure the whole staff and the whole club are hoping for, is that we can have a good summer under. Uh, this this start this coaching staff they can implement what they want to implement um, and we can really try and hit the ground running uh, f- from from day one really yeah fingers crossed mate fingers crossed um, as I said in the intro obviously we're here to discuss Sunday I'm sure a lot of people are here for that well hopefully they are anyway all ten of them <laughs> so we'll go back to the summer of July 2018 my my calculations yeah, are correct I think so yeah I believe so I think so. I think you were about the fifth signing at the time. We signed like a big batch of defenders. I'm sure it was Alan Mozturk, uh Flannel, Reese James, Glenn Leuvens. 
and then yourself. But but how did the move come about originally? Uh, well, like yeah, like you say, it was July. I think it was literally a week before the season started because I missed out on the first game. So obviously, I was at, I was at Peterborough at the time before signing at Sunderland. Um, kind of had a meeting with the manager there and was told, like, not kind of in my plans. Um, feel free to look about kind of thing. And before before I knew it, my agent was in touch and said, basically, Sunderland was on the table. What would, would you be interested? And I kind of thought, so, do you even do you even have to ask me that? Like, like the big the biggest football club in the, in, in the league and one of the biggest clubs in the country. So for me, it was a massive. Um, personal milestone to sign for, for a club like Sunderland um, just just gutted it didn't work out the way I'd, I'd hoped and, and and seen it in my mind really Did it help that you played for I know obviously you didn't play each other often but you, you played in a club nearby with Hartlepool who have got a great set of fans as well although it's a little bit smaller yeah. did it help being at yeah. Hartlepool being able to see the size of Sunderland from sort of a closer distance than maybe some other people had Yeah I mean like you say I started my career at Hartlepool, so I'd lived in the North East for two, two and a half years or whatever it was. Um, so I was familiar with, um, with with Durham, with the Metro Centre, with with obviously all the the main the main attractions, if you want to call it that, in the North East. Um, Metro so it, it was kind say. of like, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like I was going back to something familiar, like. It, it was it was almost like a home away from home because I'd lived at home before that until I was 18 um, right up until the day I signed for Hartlepool so to, it was the first time I moved away from a family um, and kind of got living by myself so I, I'd always think the North East is a home away from home because it's where I spent a lot, lot, of, lot of time there and really enjoy it and the people up there are amazing like you say Hartlepool's a fantastic starting point for me that the club was brilliant the, the fan base there is, is amazing and um and, and i can wish them all the best in the in the playoff final this weekend because uh I, they they get back to where they belong yeah they, no they're, they're a great club i agree with you on that i like, I like hartlepool and i think that they're, they're generally a very welcoming place unless you're unless you're a monkey of course um and i think you're a spy and it's very very <laughs> of different course, yeah. of course of but you course. know they're just trying to protect the country was there any other clubs interested at the time, or was it like as soon as Sunderland came in that you didn't kind of look elsewhere? Um, yeah, no, I think there was a couple of other League One clubs um, on the table, um, but like you say, as soon as soon as you hear Sunderland doing even the slightest bit of interest, you put everything else on the back burner because that's, that's the one you want to hope you hope comes through. So thankfully, it did, and um, I had I a chance to play for such a such a great football club. I think we'll come on to the, the relationship you had with Jack Ross more later, but first time you meet Jack Ross, I think he's obviously a very dapper young gentleman, uh, very good with his cardigans and his shirts, but aside from his dress sense, what were your first <laughs> impressions of Jack Ross? Um, yeah, obviously, at the time he'd come down from um, a winning team in Scotland. They just got the, got the promotion, I believe, to, to, the, to the Scottish Premiership. And it was kind of, the idea that the club was kind of growing for the future, sort of like the, the, the chosen a young young manager who'd had a bit of success up in Scotland, um, knows what it takes to win game win games of football. So that's kind of the, the the picture I had was like 
they, they get in the, getting this young manager from Scotland. He's going to build his own team and kind of carry him forward for the next few years um, and try and get the club back to where it belongs. Uh, so that was kind of my initial picture of, of the manager at the time. Was it Jack Walsh you got to meet first or was it the obviously Donald and Meth then, the, the, the duo as it came to be known? <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I met um, I met Jack Ross first and kind of met him at the training ground and had a good meeting and a good chat with him and he outlined his ideas and his plans for me going forward. And um, yeah, I didn't really meet the duo, as you call them, um, until a bit a bit later on, I believe. So, sorry, that had you at some point, mate. Um, going back to the time that you arrived, though, to be fair, everything felt really positive. Like the new chairman had come in. Yeah, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but I remember being a fan at the time. You had this chairman in Ella Short that was quite reclusive, didn't really speak, and we were falling through leagues to this chairman who was like being really open, really honest, or so we thought at the time, which was a total contrast. Um, how did the mood around the club feel when you were like coming in, like those first few days before the season started? Did it feel quite positive? Yeah, yeah, it was very, like you say, it was uh, with Jack Ross coming down, it was kind of like that that building block to, to go ahead over the next few years. And it was kind of a real buzz about, about, about the place and believing that they could, we could get the job done at the first time of asking, really. Um, and then obviously going into the first game with Gooch scoring the last minute winner was, was such an amazing feeling for, for, I'd only been, I'd only been in the building a, a week. I think it was two, three or four training sessions. Um, and yeah, I, just, I still remember that raw, that raw when when the goal went in. It was, it was absolutely amazing, and it was a like you say, it was a real positivity growing around the place, and a real belief that we could create something special that that season. When it comes to the, the goal that Gucci scored, I mean, I remember, I remember the raw, the atmosphere was great, and it felt like, oh, this is it, you know, crest for wave. Here we are, four years later. Um, but at the time. <laughs> Um, it did feel very, very good, very, very positive. With the the fact that you'd been at Hartlepool beforehand, you kind of had more of an idea than most what the atmosphere might be like. When that goal went in, you seen how loud and proud and mental the club could be. Did it kind of still take you by surprise, even though you had kind of an idea of what maybe the club would be like? Yeah, I mean, going back to when I was at Hartlepool, I remember sitting in in my little flat that I had on the Hartlepool Marina watching uh, watching the North East Derby on multiple occasions and you could just get the sense of, of the area more than anything um, you could just sense of how big it was and how much football means to everybody in, in the North East so I kind of had an idea of what, what to expect fan base wise but like that, that roar when that goal went in I think I was sitting on the bench and like shivers down the spine and goose pimples all over my arms and that. So, it, because for me it was like it was the the, the not the, pin, the pinnacle, but it's the highest I've, I've ever been as a footballer. Like yeah. in terms of club stature and expectation and fan base. So it was quite, It was it was it was a bit surreal at the time, to be honest. And I, and I did take a while to settle in. I, I felt like a bit. I felt like a bit of a, just, just from me personally, like I felt like a bit of an outsider, like I didn't belong there because everything was so amazing and the facilities were out of this world, something I'm not, not used to. Um, the training ground, obviously the stadium, the fan base, and I kind of felt like, well, do I actually belong here? But obviously I, I 
must have must have done something right to get there initially. But um, but yeah, it was it was a bit surreal at the time. I mean, when you came, obviously you didn't play that game because you'd only been a few days beforehand. But you did come in the next game against Luton. Um, yeah, yeah. And you you basically managed to secure your place for the majority of the, the rest of that season. In the first part of the season, um, I think you really hit top form. I think I actually think the opposite. I think you settled really, really well. And I think there was like Jack and Bauer. I remember specifically tweeting the words Jack and Bauer at you at some point. Um, but you were someone that when you first came in, the fans really took to. Uh, why do you think, even though you, what you've just said, why do you think this, the start of your Sunderland career started as brightly as it did? Um, I don't know, really. Maybe there was... Uh subconscious element that I probably had to try and impress to just kind of show that I deserve to be there maybe um, yeah I don't, I don't really know and I, I, I always understand that the position I'm in I'm such a privileged position and I understand that I'm really lucky and then, but at the same time I've earned, I've earned the right to be there so I always try and have that connection with with the fans of any club that I've, that I've been at that kind of I'm not like I didn't grow up through an academy I kind of earned my way into the professional game so I've been on the other side where I've had a I've I had a normal job before I signed professional but when I was, was still at college and just a little part-time job but I've been on both sides of the spectrum and I understand that it is hard hard work to get to where we are today as, as professionals but I try to show that in my performance as much as I can sometimes a bit too hard I try a bit too hard and to my detriment and it's let me down uh, many occasions but I always try to let um, let the fans know that I care about the club that I'm at and I want to do my best for the football club regardless of who it is Talking about like settling in and stuff like that I think it would be obviously it might be a little while after um, by the time this is released but it would be remiss of me not to mention Unfortunately, the, the passing of Louise Wanless, who I think everyone across the club, uh, fans, other clubs, the, the whole of the, basically the UK's game of football has, has commented on what a, yeah. a wonderful person yeah. she was. And you were someone who came into the club and like you said, you, you know, you maybe struggled a bit mentally first when you came in because you, you weren't sure if you were in the rightful place. Um, how important is someone like Louise Wanless to, to, to you settling in? And did you get much of a, a chance to sort of speak with her over stuff like that? Yeah, huge. Um, obviously, I could just say like thoughts and condolences to everybody, um, Louise's family, the football club, and like you say, she was such a character that the whole football, the whole football world, um, was felt her loss. And she, she, she was massive for the football club. Um, like you say, for me coming in, she, she was such a character. Like never failed to put a, a smile on my face. Always checking that it was okay. Um, she kind of, kind of like my mum at the football club. She was always checking that everything was okay. That I was where I needed to be. Um, if I ever had to do any media duties, that they wasn't keeping me too long, and that they wasn't asking anything too controversial, and and all that sort of stuff. So that like, she, she, yeah, she was a focal point, and and she really made me feel like I belonged um, at, at the football club. Seems it was no surprise that like pretty much any player that ever played for Sunderland had condolences and obviously massive condolences to her family and everyone that that affects and probably the, yeah. the entirety of Sunderland for that. Um, yeah. Talk before about the the social media element of 
the Jack and Bauer stuff and all that kind of thing. And it was at the time, like you say, the biggest club that you, you'd play for um, with a huge fan base, a big social media presence. How long does it take before like kind of your social media begins to blow up and you start noticing, hang on, like my phone's consistently going with fans having opinions on things. And, and how difficult is that to, to take on board when it goes from a couple of fans to like thousands? Yeah, I mean, it, I kind of, it, the, the, obviously social media has changed everything that we know like today in the, regards to sport, news, whatever it may be, politics. <clears throat> and obviously starting at Hartlepool as a relatively small club in the Football League, that I kind of grew a bit when I went to Peterborough, there's a slightly bigger fan base in it. Obviously up to Sunderland, it was, it was a different world. So it was kind of almost immediate when you post that obligatory, great to be here, um, which at the time, but when, when I wrote mine, it was great to be here. I can't, can't wait to get started because I understood that what a, what a great opportunity it was for me. And uh, it was it's kind of all the responses to those kind of messages and people wishing you good luck and all that, that I kind of realised straight away how couldn't put your phone down for two seconds without it lighting up somebody liking something or retweeting something or commenting um, good luck so yeah it was pretty immediate in that sense um, which is when I probably decided to turn off all the notifications and all the social medias because <laughs> because I, I was under I understood that obviously it's great when it's great but at the same time if you're if, if you're having a bad run or you're not everybody's cup of tea you're going to get all that stuff through uh, immediately to, to to your house your living room wherever you may be at the time and it, it you've got to take the good with the bad if you're on that sort of if you're on that sort of social media platforms but um i try and do as much as i can to stay away from all the bad i, I wish I, I wish i could unfortunately my job my job relies on it but i understand exactly where you're coming from at 100 yeah. um Another player who, like early doors, was was taken list till the day he left was taken in by fans was Chris Maguire. Um, I know some people think he's inconsistent. I'll put it out there to say absolutely love him. Um, he's a bit of a wind up merchant, and I think we've seen numerous times when he's like that. But but what's he like off the pitch, Chris Maguire? Yeah, Chris. Chris is a great great guy. He's, he's like you say, he's the character. He's probably everything you expect off the pitch as well. A bit of a joker. And like to have a laugh and a joke and um, yeah like you say a bit of a wind up merchant I remember um, playing against him Peterborough v Ox when he was at Oxford and uh, I think I, I tripped him for a, and give away a penalty and uh, the goalkeeper you might have seen the video the goalkeeper was pointing to the side that he oh, thought was that your game? It. and uh, <laughs> he obviously scored and then he went and got in the goal and <laughs> and took the piss out oh, sorry, excuse me. no no it's fine you can, the, uh, you can swear as much as you want on this mate <laughs> and took the piss out of the goalkeeper by just diving on the floor so I kind of I sort of didn't like him at the time but then obviously getting to getting to know him and playing alongside him and having that on your team is is always is always good and uh, yeah he's probably like you say he's everything you expect um, off the pitch like what you get on the pitch with Chris Maguire being on the pitch, obviously you see certain flash points. There was the, the Bradford game when he's laughing in that lad's face. There's the Portsmouth game when he's, for some reason, going for the biggest guy on the pitch in Christian Burgess. Um, but on the pitch, there'll be things that we don't recognise, like little things he's saying to players, little 
little things he's getting into people like what's he like on the pitch is he as much as a shithouse as the the things that we've seen is he like always at plays and trying to get the psychological advantage yeah I think so yeah I think he's I think that's just that's just him that's like ingrained ingrained in his, in his body like he that's his, he just loves to wind people up whether whether he wants to shake their hand after the game or not I don't know um, or whether he's sincere when he does it <laughs> uh, but yeah like obviously to have, to have that on your team is any any advantage you can get on an opposition is is helpful. So if he's getting in someone's head that he's going to make like make a mistake or do something rash to to, to give us a goal or a, a, a head start in the game, then then so be it. And <laughs> feel free to crack on, Chris. Yeah, yeah, I'll take it any day of the week. Um, one of your when I, when I was thinking before, like. Uh, Jack Baldwin, something. What's the what's the things I think of? And there's two moments. One you might disagree. One you'll probably agree with me on here. But Bradford away, ten men, max power, went through a, a series of enjoying getting sent off every couple of weeks for some reason. Um, you had a great game at the back, and you managed to grab the winner. What are your memories of that day? Because at that time, things felt really, really good at something. Yeah, uh, like you say, it was obviously the game itself, the way it panned out. Um, obviously, Max. Maxi Red and uh, I remember the when I, when I scored the goal as I wheeled off round where the fans were I like my wife was in the front with my children and my mum and dad like, all along the front row and literally as soon as I turned around that like, that's all I could see and like the roar from everybody else and I could just like I was just focused on my like my family literally right there it was. Like I, I, I get lost. I get lost for words a lot because I can't really put how I feel into words. But yeah. it was, it was so, it was, it was an amazing feeling. And like once, once it had all settled, well, I say settled down. Once the, once the euphoria of it all had settled down, and kind of had to kind of take a deep breath as I was going back to to to, to the to our half to to restart the game. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a left foot swivel as well. Wasn't it? Yeah, it was. If I remember rightly. <laughs> we, we, it's unheard of. We turned. Yeah. yeah. I turned like the Titanic then as well. <laughs> Your words, not mine. Um, that's a that's a point really where I haven't really thought about that so much. But I think when you talk about players that have joined Sung and you chat about the stadium, like how big the fan base is, training facilities, all the stuff that maybe like as fans we we kind of know about, but. My some of my favourite memories of Sunderland fans is going down in thousands to an away game, and, and Bradford oh. I think had thousands that day. I, I want to say it was about yeah. at least three thousand. Is that when you kind of realise even more the magnitude of Sunderland when you see the numbers that we travel with, even in the third tier, which we're totally haven't been used to until recently. Hundred percent, yeah, one hundred percent. Obviously, the, I don't know, I don't know what the figures are for the average attendance when fans were allowed in for away fans, but. Sunderland would would have smashed that probably like fivefold every week at least. Um, like you say, the Bradford game, the one that sticks out as well is the I think it was Blackpool away New Year's Day. It was about eight thousand. Took Great back day. half of, half the stadium. Um, yeah, the, the away following, just selling out away ends like every week, and it do, it does make a difference because it it turns it from an away fixture to kind of not a home, like almost like a neutral, neutral ground. And you've got the voice of the fans as well then, which normally 
where wherever the where voice the, the voice of the fans was it yeah it was like a mini home game really obviously without the the 20s and the 30,000s it was like a mini home game so yeah I think it's a good point that you you probably realize the the magnitude of the club by the away the away travel definitely yeah, we're, we're all a bit mad, if I'm honest with you, with away games. I'm missing them. I'm, I'm missing them. Teeing up here as, you, as you're discussing them. Do you remember an away game? That, that 16, 18 remember months ago? Days. Yeah. yeah, remember those days. Uh... I said I had two memories of you. My second one is probably one you're not going to expect. And I think I know the answer to this because I've seen the video. However, reverse fixture. Uh, yeah. Br- <laughs> The reverse fixture against Bradford, obviously 46,000 fans or 48,000 fans, I think it was a record attendance. Boxing day, yeah. Boxing day, great great day, not the best performance, but in the last 10 minutes, um, John McLaughlin sort of spills it. You're sort of like the nearest to that at that point when he spills it. So the question I want to ask is, did that go over the line in your opinion? No. <laughs> the right answer. No chance. No chance. <laughs> Only about four yards over. They never do. <laughs> yeah, they never do. Um, yeah, that, that was that was Sunday. Uh, like you say, the record attendance. I think it was the third highest in the UK that day as well. I think only United and Spurs. I remember looking at the the, the tape that wherever it popped up, Sky Sports News probably. Uh, the attendances for the day and Sunderland sitting third. Uh, yeah, that was. Yeah, I think performance wasn't great, but. We'd sneak to one nil, didn't we? Yeah, we took the Three win. Points. Yeah, well, very much mattered, did. Yeah. yeah, I think obviously the goal scorer that day, which you brought me on delightfully to, was was Aidan McGeady. Um, obviously, at the time of speaking, we don't know if he's signed a new contract yet. I'm hoping he does personally, but he was becoming a real focal point at that point. He'd been out injured till about October. By December, you were sort of seeing the quality he had at that level, and he probably has continued to be apart from when Parkinson sort of dropped him a real focal point for Sunderland. Um, Lewis Morgan, I think, spoke on open goal and, and said that he would often come in and be open and honest and chat about expectations if you thought we weren't hitting them and said, oh, you can't draw it home to Atherton and, and Burton or whatever it was. Um, and yet, there's kind of two opinions on that. Like, should we have high standards and so on and so forth? Or, or you know, is it not fair enough that he's speaking, whatever it may be? But the question that I would give to you would be, in your opinion, what was Aidan McGeady like within the dressing room and, and how much of a positive was he? Gage is, is brilliant to have. I personally, personally love the man. Like, Snap. He's such... The, the, the thing with Gage is he, he will say, say it how it is and, quite, uh, and not care about the backlash or whatever may come from it, if something's not right, he'll rightly as well out it wherever it needs to be outed. Um, and there's probably, there's, there's, there's people in this world who can react to that. There's people who think that he was probably having a go or um, picking on bullying people, whatever you may want to call it. But if so, and as, as players and professionals, and our duty to go and try and win football matches every week. If something's not right, then it should it should be pointed out. And that's something that I've I've got to be better at and grow into as I get older. That I've never kind of been one to come in and like 
say like like this is this is shit boys for put like and single people out because no matter what football club you go to they'll say like you need to have a bit of bit of nastiness and if someone's not doing something pull them like kind of get into them a little bit and understand that it's all from a professional point of view that it's not I'm singling you out because I don't like you it's I'm singling you out because you're not putting your weight and as a group of lads we need to get three points today um so yeah like if something wasn't right Giggs would say and the, the level of expectation and the, the level he's played at and the talent that he's got as a player drawing to Accrington or obviously no disrespect to, to those football clubs because they've earned the right to be where they are for for for, for all reasons his expectation is that he doesn't want to be sat in League One playing against League One football clubs. He he knows he's a better player than that. We all know he's a better player than that. And he he's a fantastic talent and he he, he shouldn't be in League One. But yeah, like obviously I whenever whenever I see like highlights or whatever and Geed is featuring uh, uh, it's a joy to watch and uh, like I said at the start I love the I love the man. He's a, he's a great guy. How hard was he to train against and defending? Because obviously you would have been up against him and he's got feet that are just ridiculous, even at 36 or whatever he is now. <laughs> um, it was it was tough. Yeah, so obviously, like the, guy, the guys played in the Champions League. Like, do you know what I mean? He's, and for me, little old Jack Baldwin, who's come through Hartlepool and Peterborough, like 1v1 drills or even like in a possession he's squaring me up and he's doing his little fuzz feet where he's jinking to one side and skipping at the left and I'm tying myself in not trying to work out how, how I've got to deal with it obviously it, it can only help me as in, improve on that kind of aspect of the game um, but yeah he's, he, he's a talented guy and there's no, obviously we all know that make no bones about it and like I said he definitely doesn't doesn't need to be in League One for any longer than he needs to be when it comes to Aidan McGeady, when you're talking about, um, like you said, Sunderland don't want to be in League One. The fans don't want to be in League One. So no. to me, the, no. that attitude that he has is is completely fine by me. But would it be fair to say that it's um, McGeady's doing that because he doesn't just want to not be in League One himself. He doesn't want Sunderland to be in League One because I think he has an affection for us from what I can see. He's been here a long time now. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, he... He's a good guy, and he and he cares, and he does all the like. He's he's a he's a top professional as well. Does all the right things, recovery wise, and um, if we if there's a recovery session in the pool or whatever, that he'll be in there, he'll be getting it done. So he cares he cares about doing the right things for the football club to put himself in the best possible position to help the football club, and. Obviously, he 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 does divide opinion, and there's probably people's opinions that the I don't know he doesn't want to be at Sunderland just there to pick up a paycheck or whatever but like you say I, I definitely think he's got that affectionate side for Sunderland and, uh, and he does care he does care about the club definitely fingers crossed he signs a contract by the time this is out which you know hopefully hopefully, yeah, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think when I look back on the, the season that we're discussing um, outside of the things we've already mentioned if I think, why did Sunderland fail to get promoted? There's two words that come up, and that's Josh Madger. Um, and I look 
I was looking back through the fixtures when I was sort of setting the questions for this, and I thought you can sort of see when the contract situation comes in and starts being a topic of discussion, we start faltering a little bit. How much did the saga of Josh contracts, uh, Josh Madges signing the contract or not signing the contract, how much did that affect the dressing room and the team? Um, it's hard when I think when a situation like that arises in a football club, it's hard to say like that that one event triggers a, a, a downfall of events or whatever it may be, because it's something that you don't talk about as a group, mm-hmm. so to speak. Like, so we wouldn't all be sitting at lunch on one table saying, "Oh, do you think Madge is going to sign his new contract, or do you think, do you think he's away, or whatever?" It's something that you probably think to yourself and think of the implications of him not signing or signing and whatever the case, whatever it may turn out to be, it will be what it will be. But yeah, like, I don't think it has that overall effect on the whole group at one stage. It's kind of the individuals probably thinking to themselves like, is he going to sign? Does he want to be here? This, that, and the other. Um, but yeah, like you say, it's Mad, Mad, Madger, Madger leaving was was a big loss for us. He was he, he was, a, he was a great striker. He scored scored some great goals, and like his, his footwork in and around the box was was right up there with with the, with the best. And um, he could create a yard out of nowhere and get a shot away with within the, within an instant. So um, yeah, Madger was a big miss, but. These things happen in football, and obviously, as as a team and as a club, you've got to adapt and and find a new find a new way. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, that that didn't happen, but we will come on to it. But before we do, um, <laughs> as I said before, you, you were probably the only one that's been on Netflix longer than I have been. I have to check the timings on that. To be fair. Um, <laughs> But it's a bit of a weird situation. I mean, I remember doing the podcast that is on the on the uh, the show, and it's it's weird having cameras on you because you don't know if you're being negative, positive. You don't know what's going to go out. You don't think, oh, what's this going to be like in a six month time when it's out? And, it, and it, it does play tricks on your mind almost as a, someone who was just doing it in one bit as part of a blooming podcast for crying out loud. As a player, it must be much different. You obviously had the cameras in your home, met your family, stuff like that, and, and things like that. So you had that part of it. Um, but how weird was it having the cameras on you all the time around the ground? Does it create an extra pressure or is it easy to ignore? Um, I think initially, but especially from, I'm only talking personally here, but it, it was a bit strange at first because obviously you normally get the odd match day camera um, filming you're walking into the, into the, the stadium or whatever, but initially to have them about the training ground and um, maybe the, the calf or where, where we're eating our lunch um, out on the pitch as you come in the car park or whatever it was a bit it was a bit surreal but it's a bit like anything really you you kind of get used to it being there and you kind of know that you're going to be driving into training and you're going to expect a guy there with the camera wanting to to ask you a question about something or other um, or asking if they come and film you after training for 10 minutes that turns into an hour or <laughs> whatever it may be um so yeah you kind of you kind of get used to it uh, eventually i think so it doesn't really i think they banned i think that season that i was there i think they banned them from the dressing room if i'm right in 
yeah, on the match day. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of you had that not safe environment, but you had that on the match day. You had that pure focus of just getting the job done without the cameras being there. Um, but yeah, it didn't. Yeah, didn't play too much. You like I say, you kind of get used to it eventually. On the flip side, I think Luke Nines made to be a TV personality when he eventually retires. Um, you are someone who joined at the same time as, as Luke Nine. I think it's quite obvious from the outside looking in how great of a bloke he is. He seems really chilled, nice, gets the community side right, obviously comes from a really great background and a good family upbringing, but just how nice of a person is Luke Nine? Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's, like you say, he's a nice guy. Like that is, that is Luke. He, the definition of what you expect everything a top professional to be, he'll be doing absolutely almost. He does too much, I'd say, yes. <laughs> if that's possible. He'll be in. He'll be in the gym. He'll be in the swimming pool doing lengths till like five o'clock or whatever it may be. Um, but that that is here. That's that's all he knows, and that's how he's got to where he's today. So good on him. And um, yeah, like you say, in front of a camera, he like he knows exactly what to say. Interacting with the community, he's. He knows how to to react to fans and be that personality around fans. But one thing I will say is that on the pitch, he has got that little bit of wind up merchant and like not nasty side. But He's come playing from against him, you'd, you'd really get you'd get really frustrated playing against him. Um, but yeah, no, like I say, yeah, all round great guy. You can sort of tell he's came from Wickham, I think. I think people miss that with Luke Nine sometimes. He has got a, he's got a not not a shit house side, but he knows the dark arts. I think is the would be the maybe the right term. He, he knows it. He knows how to play the game on a match day. He knows the little, the little like theatrical when to when to put a bit of a dive on or when to like fumble picking up a ball for a free kick or throw in or all those kind of. <laughs> Playing the game, playing the referee, and um, yeah, he—that's that's the thing as well. I think his reputation helps him out a lot because he's got that nice guy reputation. You kind of don't expect that side of the game, so gets like the referees on the side and things like that. You, you always need something like that in your team, whether people agree with it or not. Um, another part of that season which we've discussed was Josh Madger. I suppose the the opposite side of that is Will Greg. Now, it didn't work out. Obviously, he's coming back, but it's not going to work out. Um, everyone's seen what happened on Netflix, how the, the move came to be. But there's been a lot of people have criticised throughout his time as demeanour at Sunderland, said that he seems like he wants to be somewhere else. There's been a few quotes he's come out with that kind of indicate he has been, but you can only give your opinion on what you've seen of him. And obviously, it's a little while ago. But what was Will Greg like in the dressing room? Did he appear to not want to be there? Or was he quite a jovial character? What, what, what was he like? Um, no, he, he never appeared that he, he didn't want to be there. He's like he's always part of. There was always there was always pranks being played, and you'd guaranteed that that Griggy was was a part of that in some some shape or form. And um, yeah, no, he definitely didn't get the get the impression that he didn't want to be there at all. He's, he was. Like I say, always joining in with the jokes and the pranks and keeping himself right. Um, obviously, having banter with the lads when, as and when banter arises, or I hate I hate using the word banter, but 
joking around with, with, with the lads. Get where you're coming from. Um, it's an easy word to use, though, isn't it? Everyone yeah. understands it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, <laughs> yeah, when you say banter, everyone understands. <laughs> but yeah, no, I never I, I never got the impression that he, he didn't want to be there at all. No. Do you think it would be fair to say that because it was such a disastrous move, people are just maybe looking for more reasons than are actually there? Um, yeah, I think obviously signing signing as a striker for Sunderland, I think a, a massive feat. Looking at the the strikers that the club have had over the pre- previous history, um, so I think that the weight of expectation to hit the ground running straight away is massive. And I think if you haven't, if you don't understand that, and you haven't got the character to be able to deal with that, then you, you're not going to quite not go in with your shell, but it, you won't get the rubber to green. Like you, I think yeah. you, you make your own luck in the game, and um, it's hard because you, when the fans are in the stadium, get the sense of the atmosphere um, and how it affects the players. And I think obviously strikers are, are, are confidence players at the end of the day. If they're confident, they're going to be they're going to be firing at all cylinders. And maybe Griggy just didn't feel that confidence from from the from from the outside coming in. Um, and like I say, not hitting the ground running straight away is is an uphill battle. I think he I missed think. an open goal on his. Obviously, you scored that game, Blackpool. He missed an open goal as well in his like first home game. I think, which kind of. Unfortunately, he probably set the tone for his time here, but he's got an MK Donson scored goal. So there's, there's something in it somewhere, but it's always an interesting thought because I know a lot of people aim at Adam and obviously somebody who's been in the dressing room, it's, it's certainly worth asking. Um, on to more positive moments at Sunderland, I know the result wasn't exactly what we wanted, but the Checker Trade Trophy final was a great day. Like I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the weekend. Most of us did. Unbelievable. Just superb. But my abiding memory of... like getting up for the game was when I seen the videos of you coming off um, the Trainer King's Cross and hearing the sort of roar from the fans. Yeah, yeah. What are your memories of that moment, that day, that weekend? Um, kind of felt like, I don't know, as you say, when we got off the train at King's Cross, there was foul, God knows how many something fans there. Um, but you had like, everyone else who wasn't connected with football just going about their, their daily lives and you hear this loud roar and clapping and cheering and chanting and you kind of see everyone who's not connected with it looking around and like what's, what's going on here like like England national teams just got off the train or something but yeah I remember like the security trying to get us through like all the fans and the little side gate like where the like down the side where they keep the rubbish to get out to the coach, um, and then like, obviously all the lads having pictures and stuff and the flags and yeah, the build up for the game was was great. Um, the, the night before in the hotel, like, I, me and Flano shared a room, I think, and it was it was a calm like peaceful evening, and we was like kind of just sat on the balcony looking out at I think like the river or wherever we were staying and. Just, it had a really, really great feel about it. Obviously, like you say, the, the day itself was was fantastic. The result, not so much, um, which at the end of the day is probably the, the biggest thing in football. <laughs> is the biggest thing in football. So it was a disappointing day in that sense, but a personal achievement at playing at Wembley in front of nearly 90,000 people was 
something I'd never never forget. On the flip side of that, I know obviously the penalties came shortly afterwards and we know what happened there with Cats and so on and so forth. Um, but when McGeady scored that goal, for, for a moment, it felt like the Checker Trade Trophy was at the World Cup final just for that split 10 seconds and everyone mental. <laughs> yeah. um, you're on the pitch viewing that. Like, How does that feel when you, when you see that end go bananas, basically? Yeah, it was like a an out of body experience. Like you see him like getting into the box and then Richard and then you just I think he just slots it past the keeper. I can't remember how it how it came about, but like you say, that the eruption of noise and it could have it could have easily been the World Cup final. Final final. I don't think the noise at any of those games would have been any different to the noise that was produced at, at that moment. Um and it was kind of it was a relief for me because if I remember rightly, the goal that we conceded, I think the ball over the top, I, I, I could have dealt better with because the striker got in off my shoulder and I, I remember being fuming with myself because it could have been so easily prevented. Um, so like I say, it was a massive relief for me to know that we was back in the game and uh, that that moment hadn't cost us at that time. Um, so, yeah, to, to see that that eruption at the end of the of the stadium and the the the, the sigh of relief as well, it was a bit of a, a bit of a mad moment for me. After the game, I think a few people commented, and I love Lee Catamull. Like I openly do. He's the, for me, he's a, a total legend. But you kind of felt like because of that, when he stepped up, he might be the one that might miss it. Um, you looked devastated afterwards, but. Lee Catmull's achieved so much in the game at a higher level. Realistically, he probably never thought he'd even play that competition. How was he in the dressing room afterwards? Because of his experience and stuff, was he able to shoulder it off? Or um, was he still like thinking about other people trying to be the captain? Or did he have a bit of a moment to himself? Yeah, I think you, you could you could sense and see the disappointment. Um, because, like you say, with, with Gede, I've... Cats genuinely cares about the football club as well, so yeah. that that sense of disappointment, you kind of and being the figure the figure he is, and like you say, the, the experience he's got in the game and the, the games he's played in and the, the level he's played at, I think kind of everybody understood that he could arm around him or whatever. But in football, like we're our own biggest critics, so he would have been having his own thought processes and. and meant like anyone could have gone up to him put his arm around him and it probably wouldn't have made too much difference to the way he was think, thinking and feeling at the time um, so yeah obviously devastating that it, that it turned out the way it did but yeah I think he uh, yeah he, he was definitely definitely disappointed about that I'd certainly take more good memories from that game and it's certainly good more memories of Lee Catmull than the actual result I must be honest with you and that was a Cracking weekend, cracking day. Yeah, um, I'm sure many other people do as well, yeah. It, from what they remember, yes. Um, if they remember much of it, because I know I certainly <laughs> don't. But um, probably the the big moment in your son and career, probably from a, a disappointing perspective for you, was that Coventry game that came up. Um, I actually wasn't at the game. Yeah. I was in Sweden watching it from Sweden randomly. Um, it was a poor day all around. And it just, yeah, yeah. Well, I was 
another story for another day but I was, I was yes I was in a burger shop okay, in yeah. Sweden <laughs> watching the match um, <laughs> I think you and Tom Flanagan probably got a lot of stick after that game like I remember it like really well and I know they did and I know you both had a poor game that day that's fair enough um, but it yeah. felt like as it was you shouldered you and Flannel shouldered a lot of the blame and you were both in fact dropped the game afterwards for Jimmy Dunn and Alan mm-hmm. Turk. we win 2-0 we have a good defensive display I think Jimmy Dunn stays in for Peterborough Jimmy Dunn then comes out Flannel goes back in but you never, you yeah. never get back into the team. But before I go into like the rest of the season and what that meant, what do you think on yeah. that day went wrong for you and, and for the team? It's, you have these days in football where you get the sense that anything that could go wrong will go wrong. And literally the start of that game felt exactly like that. I think I think we conceded early on. One of the goals deflected off my shin and went past went went just past the went past on um, the like I think just just a catalogue of errors throughout the game. Um, like you say, me and Flanner was were dropped. I think at about five maybe off the top of my head. I think I think he made like five changes for the next game. Um, but yeah, it's like. It's like can I catch a break? Like it, obviously, it's not for the for the want of trying, not not trying because you never go out to play a football match thinking, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure we're three 0 down before half time today, and like I want to concede three goals in the opening thirty minutes or whatever it was, something ridiculous. Like that's that's never the case. It's it's just <laughs> like I said, everything that could go wrong went wrong that day. Um, I think we I think we pulled it back before half time, if I remember rightly, we got back into the game, scored yeah. yeah um and yeah, it was just like, I, I honestly don't know. Um it was one of those days where a few of us had a bad game and it was collectively all at the same time rather than one of us having a bad game one week, the the, the ten other players pulling us out of the shit. And then someone else's turn to have a bad game the week after, and the other ten pulling like the shit that week. It was most of the team had a shitter, and it ultimately cost us in a bloody in a game that was just goals galore. And like you say, there was a lot of changes made for the following game, and that was probably that was the end of of my, my season and, and career at Sunderland. Really, with that game in particular, I know obviously. It probably did end your career with something, which I'm sure will come on to as the reasons to why. But two, three year on, whatever it may be, because I've lost track with COVID. Um, did that game learn you more than probably like a lot of wins as a professional? Yeah, yeah, they do because obviously the the phrase you learn from your mistakes and this, that, and the other. But you look at games like that and you see how like tiny tiny errors all over the pitch like leading into each other so like one error could be avoided but then the game would progress and then something else would happen that could be avoided and then it's you you watch the game back and we've got the facilities these days you the, the game gets uploaded to to the websites afterwards and you can look at your clips and assess your performance and 
they're never they're, they're never easy watches, um, especially when the game goes so badly like it did. But you can see how certain moments affect the game, and you think what you would do differently if if you were to kind of find yourself in that position again, and how that would affect the game. Um, so it's something that I've needed to work on throughout my career before Sunderland and, and even till this day now um, so I'm hoping I'm getting better at that learning to nip it in the bud when kind of you're, you're noticing things go wrong get back to the basics and just get back on a, on a level playing field and nothing like you, you, you as an experienced player you've got to understand when those games arise some days everything's going to be going for you you're going to be winning your headers you're going to be clipping diags to the opposite wing like winger and putting balls in behind for the strikers and some days you're going to be shanking your clearances into the stand and it's those games where you've got to realize that it may be not your it, it may not be your day that day and you've just got to get back to basics and uh, and really really just do the basics well said before about how um, Fano and, and yourself got dropped, you realistically, apart from one game the next season, never got back in. What was said after that game between yourself and Jack Ross where you just totally fell out of favour because you, you, you didn't even get on the bench for the rest of the season? You went from being someone who'd started the season well, was liked by fans, yep, went through a rocky patch, yep, had a bad game to suddenly basically never being involved with anyone again. So I'm guessing there was a, a conversation between yourself and Jack Ross after that. I think there was, but not to an extent that you'd, you'd imagine. I mean, I think he pulled me in to tell me that I was dropped for the next game, definitely mm-hmm. from, if I can remember rightly. Um, but, which obviously I accepted, I couldn't complain. Um, and and if I have a bad game and I, I, and, I'm, and I get dropped for the next game, I completely understand. And I'm not one to confront the manager and say, well, I, one bad game, blah, blah, blah. I'll just, I'll accept it and get back on training pitch that day, the next day, whenever it may be, and just go about my business the way I have been doing for the last however many weeks. Um, so the conversation extent was was minimal before the, ne- before the following game. Um, but I, I, did you say the next game was Peterborough? It was Doncaster then, Peterborough, yeah. Doncaster. Yeah, because I remember I travelled to the Peterborough game and sat in the stand. Um, I travelled to, like, in this last... The, from me, the point of me getting dropped to the end of the season, I think I travelled to Peterborough, Southend and Bristol, I think, funny enough, and sat in the stand on all three occasions, which are three, three long trips from Sunderland. Yeah. Um, and I don't... I don't, I don't like to have regrets, but looking back, I wish I'd gone and spoke to him again after a, f- a few games. Um, kind of take your punishment on the chin and then go and speak to him and reassess the situation. But like I mentioned before, I'm not that conf- confrontational person. Like to go and ask the question and be like, "Why am I not playing? I've played thirty odd games in a promotion chasing team." I'm not that. I'm not that person. I'll just get out onto the training pitch and just keep tra- trying to train well, um, and do all the right things. Be a good pro. Support the lads. Travel to the games. Not sulking. Wanting to win the game as much as anyone who's on the pitch. Um, and that's my way of dealing with it. 
looking back, I think going to speak to him again definitely would may have helped me, but um, like I say, you can't change the past and um, it, it is what it is. Looking back, <clears throat> pardon me, looking back, at what point did you start realising that maybe like your number was up almost instantly after you'd been playing week in, week out, oddly enough? Um, I think I think sitting in the stand at Peterborough away a um, couple of weeks afterwards, I mean, obviously it, it probably felt worse because I'd, I'd played at Peterborough before. So I was going back to somewhere where I would have liked to play and um, maybe I'm just feeding into a bit too much, but being taken, I understand managers' faults behind taking extra players in case of sickness or what, whatever circumstances may arise. But to be taken there or taken to free, free at the other end of the country almost um, was kind of the writings on the wall here. Like I'm not really gonna. I think that yeah, I think that's me done. So when it got to the summer, I mean, obviously, yep. it was hindsight. We didn't know at the time, but Jack Ross came out after he'd been sacked and said that he considered leaving in that summer, or he spoke to his dad or something like that. And I think that was the summer where the fans, the management, with the the takeovers, the failed takeovers, the the meth and the Donald stuff, started realizing that maybe something wasn't right. Could you, as a player? even though you were maybe not directing well for the first team at the end of the season, could you start to feel in that summer that things weren't quite right at Sunderland? Um, not, not, not for me personally. Uh, I never never kind of look, look into all, all the stuff that happens off the pitch and in the board and like that, all those kind of shenanigans, you want to call them. Um, yeah, I, I just kind of took that summer to, to really take a mental break because of the way the season ended. Obviously, went to Wembley, sat in the stand for the playoff final. Um, and it was a real a real downer, really. So I was looking to kind of pick myself back up over the, over the summer and come back into pre-season and, and try and kind of get back into the team. Um, but obviously, the Jack Ross, the manager at the time, didn't. He told me that my, my playing time would be limited um, and that I was free to kind of look for a club on loan um, if I wanted to go and play some football, which at the end of the day is is, is what we want to do. We will, we want to play football games and um, I took the decision to, to go and try and find some football somewhere else because I didn't want to just sit and not play a whole season through sitting in the stand or... At the time, that's how it felt. It would be like I'd be frozen out for the whole season and I wouldn't get a chance. Obviously, the managerial changes might have changed things, but you're never to know what's going to happen in the course of the season. So, so yeah, that's how, that's how that panned out. <clears throat> Before, obviously, you, you did go on loan. You played against Burnley, had a really good game. Uh, we played really well that day, really yeah. randomly out of nowhere. Will Griggs scored and everything went rosy for a moment. Um did you feel after that performance you might have got a chance or did you kind of know that you were just been put in there for game time and that you wouldn't get back in or was there a chance where you could have got back in maybe? Yeah, no, I, I thought that, like you say, we, we put in a, a, a great shift that day and it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a Burnley reserve team or 23 team. It was, they had, they had a strong team out that day and 
pretty close to, to full strength and to, to go there and win three one um was was brilliant and we like you say we we played really well um some some individual performances were really strong and I like to think that I played quite well that day and off the back of that thought I would have done enough to kind of get in the frame again and have a chance to stick around and um and fight for fight for some some game time again but like I said that, that it didn't it, it didn't turn out that way and uh it wasn't until just before the window shut I think that, I, that actually something come up on to, to, to go out online to go to Salford at that point I think wasn't it so yeah Salford City yeah, yeah. so yeah. did you get a chance to meet Beckham and Neville in Barton schools <laughs> I didn't know I, I think they not all of them I think I think Gary Neville I think is like the the forefront of the operation like, I think yeah. he's at most of the games and he's the one who kind of runs the show with that in that respect but yeah, unfortunately, I never got to meet him personally. I know a few other lads have had to have met him from the Wembley visit, the Wembley wins and promotion yeah. to the league and things like that. So um, I know they're heavily involved and they they do go to the games. Obviously, Bex has got other other commitments at the minute. One or <laughs> so two. He's not. He's not. Involved, but, but yeah, no, um, I personally never met him. No, uh, but good to be a part of the, the, the club's history, really, and the, the the growing trying to trying to go places. So. Yeah, and obviously, unbeknownst to you, you're part of the you're part of a, a checker trade or a pizza cup, as it's now called, trophy without actually playing in the final because of COVID. But yeah, you were still part of it. I think yeah, <laughs> you played in the semi final, of course. I remember watching it before the world one, yeah. ended. Yeah. yeah, very odd. Um, final yeah. question: When you look back on your time at Sunderland, what is the overriding emotion that you feel when you look back over it? Good question. Um, a bit gutting, really, um, that it ended the way it did, um, and the disappointment that season all kind of rolled into one. Um, but I wouldn't class it as a disappointment because, for me personally, it was it was a big year because prior to joining Sunderland, I'd only played. I think it's like late twenties, maybe thirty games a season because I'd suffered a big a couple of big injuries. Um I'd I'd a knee injury that kept me out for nearly thirty like thirteen months or whatever it was. Um so for me to join the club of the stature that Sunderland is and play as many games as I did in the circumstances, um it was quite on reflection it was it was a good year for me personally, despite the the lack of success as a club. Um, self like if I'm speaking selfishly for me to go and play that many games at a club of that size was was really um really something that I'm I'm, I'm proud of to this day um, but at the same time the the disappointment of the falling out of the team and the not being able to get promoted and not being able to lift the checker trade trophy at Wembley or um it's a kind of a mixed bag really <laughs> it's a long winded answer to your question no perfect mate I always like long-winded ones I guess the subscribers in on that note uh, thanks it very much you a job, it? yeah exactly <laughs> mate do do subscribe thank you very much um, but Jack that was a great crack thanks so much for coming on and giving me like an hour of your time and um, during your summer holidays I, I really appreciate it and I'm, I'm pleased you enjoyed your time at Sunderland mate 
yeah, thanks for having us on. Um, I was a bit nervous going on to it, but you, you made it made it smooth, mate. So thank it's you. All right, mate. No problem at all.